Our first reading is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. And our second reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 12, the Magi visit the Messiah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Adam. Now, this morning, 
for those of you who are really keen Anglicans, and I know there's some of you out there, you'll realize that we're celebrating the arrival of the Magi a little bit early. This is a week before Epiphany. Next, those readings we've had this morning are technically from next week. But what I, next week we're actually going to be starting a new series that's come out of our What Does It Mean to Be Christchurch uh, question. We're going to be looking for a period of time about, uh, about prayer. The series is going to be called Lord's Teach Us to Pray. And it's, we're going to be using Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray. Uh, and I'm really excited about that and we're really looking forward to that. But I thought this week we might spe- spend a bit of time actually looking at the readings from Epiphany looking at the celebration of the Magi turning up at the birthplace of Jesus. And, uh, and so that's what I thought we'd do this morning. And in, in particular, I want us to think about this, that how creation and God's marvelous creation, looking at it, looking at nature, thinking about it, studying it, meditating on it, can lead us into a more intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. But to start, and I know this is a bit of an odd start point, perhaps, but who here knows their star sign? Hands up if you know their star sign. What's your star sign, Benny? Aries. Interesting. Now, I'm also an Aries. I found out this week. I had no idea. Um, now, I, I wondered what was going to happen in the new year, so I looked up horoscope.com, and uh, I found out what 2020's got in, pro- in for us. So, Aries will approach the year with a pragmatic approach, apparently. Though you will be determined to achieve what you want, your ambition will be tempered with caution and realism. Ooh. Anyone else? Anyone else know a star sign? Go on. Gemini. Gemini. This is, this is detailed stuff, as you can see. Gemini. So this, this year forecasts an exciting year. Uh, you have to decide on the pace at which you want your life to proceed. Save ev- energy, apparently. Uh, that's interesting, seeing as you've just become parents. Uh, save energy and rejuvenate yourself for the future. Interesting. We'll do one more. Anyone else? Libra. Libra. Sorry. Uh, what was yours? Oh, that's a great. That's a great. There's many Libras. Libras will have plenty of time to have fun and indulge in pleasure. Profession and family environment will be stress-free. And don't require any attention, so just ignore it. You can also spend your free time with family and friends. Do you know what? Ten, of the 12, ten out of 12 of us are going to have a great year, by the way. Uh, apparently Virgos and, uh, and Sagittariuses are going to have a rough one. Sorry, guys. Uh, I, my favorite bit, but, you know, I said I was an Aries. My favorite one is Virgo. Um, apparently, they're going to potentially be misled by people who are Aries. So uh, <laughs> if, if that is you, you're welcome to leave. Sorry if I'm... <laughs> sorry if that's me. I'm sorry if you're offended by the f- me starting a horoscope, but hopefully you'll agree with me that it's yeah, a bit pithy nonsense. <laughs> so why do we think that people who look at stars would be considered wise men? You know, in our society, stargazing, and certainly in British culture, you know, looking at the stars and therefore predicting the future, it's hardly regarded as something that wise people do and clever people do. You know, some people genuinely might think it's troublesome that I'm looking at these things in church, and I'm sorry if that's you, but generally, I reckon most of us think it's a load of superstitious nonsense, a way for certain people to make some money, maybe. So why were the wise men wise? Why don't we think of them as silly men who just got lucky? Well, in our NRV translation that that we just had read to us, it describes them as wise men, um, but the other translations stick to that original word, magi. 
Now, magi is often translated other places as fortune teller, and it's where we get the word magician from. So why does it mean wise person? Well, in ancient times, stargazing wasn't primarily superstitious nonsense. And tracking the movements of the stars and the planets was, in fact, helpful for society. Why? Well, before the invention of universal calendars, the only way to know when the seasons were likely to change was through movements of the stars. Where, where they were in the sky indicated to those who studied them and knew stuff, uh, when was the best time to plant crops? When was a good time to maybe go to war to avoid adverse weather conditions? You know, this may sound crazy to us. We're in the UK, yes, we get a bit of a cold and wet rain, but it's not really that bad. But in the place where the Bible was written, remember, they have, these are places where they have stormy seasons, where they have wet seasons. The Nile is one of those rivers that floods every single year. So having people who would inform you when the seasons are likely to change, when's a good time to plant crops, they're really helpful for a good society. So these were wise people. These magi were, in fact, learned people, more similar to our scientists today. People would act upon the instruction of the wise people, trusting their knowledge and their experience. And I use the word scientists deliberately because it's similar today, isn't it? We trust people in, in their experience and their knowledge. We act upon their advice. For example, I don't know what clothes I'm going to wear tomorrow, but I might look at a weather forecast and decide whether or not to wear a coat or not on the, on the evidence of a meteorologist, and they never, ever get it wrong. So that'll be fine. More seriously, we, often tr we, we do trust in medical scientists, those who've researched medicines, doctors who've studied the human body. We trust them and their advice uh, and let them lead forward. So the magi who visited Jesus were wise. But this morning, I think one of the key lessons they teach us, is that the th and, and this is the thing I want us to reflect on, is that God revealed himself to them through creation through their study of the world in which we inhabit. Through nature, through the stars, the planets, they were led to the birthplace of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And as Matthew 2.11 says, they worshipped him, they bowed down, they brought those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Through observing creation, these Gentiles, remember, people who were born outside of Israel, they were not meant to be included in God's people until Jesus came. These Gentiles were some of the first to recognize Jesus for who he is and some of the first to worship him. It's through observing the magnitude of God's creation that they discovered the intimacy of God's Savior, a baby in his mother's arms. Now, recently, there's been a myth and, and an idea propagated that, that Christianity and science, they just don't mix. There's no way the two can, can uh, be compatible. But actually, since that time, again and again, Christians have found faith and have their faith boosted through their study of science. Uh, there's a guy called Francis Bacon. Hands up if we heard of him many of us. He's well known. He was a 15th century person who was, he notably, he, he invented the kind of modern scientific method to kind of move science away from philosophy and said, no, we need to have experiments and repeat uh, and, and, and observe change and facts and record. You know, much of science, uh, it comes down to this scientific method. But he famously believed that there were two books in this world to study. 
One being the Bible, we could study God through the Bible, and the other was nature. God was revealed through nature and science, and that's something I'll come back to later. Isaac Newton, again, we're all probably familiar with him, heralded as one of the greatest scientific minds, and yet his, ins- his science was inspired by his faith, and subsequently his findings scientifically inspired his faith. He even challenged atheistic belief. I came across a quote this week that I just love. He who thinks half-heartedly will not believe in God, but he who really thinks has to believe in God. I love it. Galileo famously said he called mathematics the language in which God has written the universe. Now, these are old scientists that have, have long since passed, but there are many, many Christians today who are leading in the field of science and who, who their faith and their science are completely compatible. And if this is something you're interested in, I thoroughly urge you to go look it up. There's organizations like Christians in Science or the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Look them up, see what they do. Or on YouTube uh, this week, uh, and I, I rediscovered um, it's these conversations, it's called Science and Faith Conversations, and I have no understanding of science, but even I was encouraged by them. <laughs> it kind of made sense, it was lay person, lay, lay speak, where uh, those people who don't understand science could be encouraged by Christian scientists and what they believe. Now my main point stands though, that really studying and thinking about creation just like the Magi is a way in which we can have God revealed to us. And you don't have to be crazy clever to do this. And this, and, and this is completely compatible with what the Bible says. The Bible seems to suggest that this would happen. There are various passages about God being revealed through looking at his creation. But perhaps the most uh, poignant one is that psalm we had read to us by Adam, uh, Psalm 19. And I wonder if we can, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to it now. But if not, um, can we, we'll get it up on the screen. Um, but I'll just look at it briefly. The first half declares the glory of God's creation. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They have and use no words. No sound is heard for them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. These things don't talk, they don't, they're not humans. Stars, creation, the heavens, the sky, creation itself does not use words, and yet it still declares the glory of God, and it goes on. The second half from verse 7 goes to the second of those books that Francis Bacon talked about. It talks about the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. So we can, and it goes on again, we can discover God's revelation. We can see who he is, what he's like by looking at creation, by studying his word. And my favorite verse in this is the very final verse of this chapter, because the psalmist himself or herself speaks and says this, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord or Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Through looking at the magnitude of creation, through studying the Bible, this person is led to an intimate relationship with God where they say, my rock, my redeemer, a personal relationship with God. Therefore, this morning, I wanna encourage us to meditate again maybe for the first time, on God's creation. 
You don't have to be a scientist or someone mega clever to do this. Heaven knows I'm nothing like this. My mum is a scientist and she was always ashamed by the fact that I couldn't care less. But we can engage our brains and do think about what these psalms, and do do what these psalms urge us to do and meditate, uh, which in biblical terms is a corporate activity. It's something you do together in community. We can talk about and encourage and discuss with one another. We can chat about God's creation and how it points to what he's like. Let's meditate and reflect and really think about God's masterpiece that we inhabit. You know, the wonders of uh, the magnitude of the universe, where our sun, you know, our massive sun, is just one of one billion trillion stars that we're observable in the universe. That's one with 21 zeros after it. God is huge. God made that. All the intricacy and the brilliance of something small like a, like a seed that germinates somehow and becomes a plant and, and maybe even becomes a tree. Something so small becoming big. God is incredible. The detail. You, spiders. Hands up who's creeped out by spiders. You guys are braver than I am. Done. <laughs> They're creepy at times, but actually consider them. They are amazing. The intricacy of spider's webs and the, the creativity that is within our creation. Creation is amazing. The creator who made it is both infinitely vast and unbelievably imaginative and detailed. And you know what? All of creation points to God. And as you think about creation, as we study it, as we reflect on it, as we meditate on it, I'm just talking to myself, but I, I bet you're the same. You can't help but be led into worship of the creator. Maybe this week, go for a walk. Even if it's raining, go and see what the world out there is like. Think about, you know, a young baby, the, the miracle that it is. Think about even your pets, whatever it is. Think about uh, creation, meditate on it. Maybe if you can't get out, watch a David Attenborough uh, documentary and think about the creator behind the creatures. But just like the Magi, as well as studying the vastness of God revealed through creation, we have to consider the intimacy of that same God. Think about that rescue plan he sent in Jesus. Because you see, the same God who creates the stars, the planets, the mountains, the oceans, he loves you. Loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He was willing to go to such lengths that he became a human baby, vulnerable in a mother's arms, so that we might relate to him. He would grow up to be uh, a teacher who, who helped us to recognize who he was. And finally, that same creator God would go to the cross for us to take the punishment for our failings and restore us to a personal and intimate relationship with him that will go on for eternity. Amen? Our God is awesome. And yet because of Jesus, just like the Magi, we can call him our God. So to finish, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, what I'd like us to do is, in a minute, we're going to sing a song. It's a song that some of you may know. We have done it occasionally at the church before, but sparingly. Um, it's called So Will I, and it's a song that's come by, out of Hillsong in Australia. Um, and what I often think, and for those of you who were at the weekend away who maybe heard me talk about this, I think songs often help us remember theology a lot better than any sermon ever could. 
uh, just for various reasons. They're more memorable, they're catchy. But also poetry uh, is famously called the language of the soul, and songs generally <laughs> are poetic. So what I thought we'd do is have a look at this song we're going to sing in a moment. Uh, and again, I'm going to ask for the lyrics to come up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the poetry of the first two verses, and then we'll stop a little bit and analyze a little bit the final bit. And that's what we're going to do, and then we'll move into singing it. So this, the, the song starts, God of creation... There at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born in the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made, every burning star a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. God of your promise, you don't speak in vain, no syllable empty or void. For once you have spoken, all nature and science follow the sound of your voice. And as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, evolving in pursuit of what you said. If it all reveals your nature, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you say, every painted sky, a canvas of your, create, of your grace. If creation still obeys you, so will I. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. For if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. If the sum of all our praises still falls shy, then we'll sing again a hundred billion times. This is a lot of what I've talked about. This poem, this song. Creation declares the glory of God. We just have to join in. But the final part of the song talks about us, talks about how God of the universe turns his attention and his love to us. It says this, God of salvation, you chased down my heart through all of my failure and pride. On a hill you created, the light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. God, the creator, entered his creation and died for us. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Everything we've ever known, everything we've ever done just disappears in the light of God's love. Where you lost your life so I could find it here. And then he, and we're called into response. If you left the grave behind you, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've done, every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose surrender, so will I. We are called to imitate our wonderful creator God who loves us. And he loves every single person out there. He says, I can see your heart eight billion different ways, every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. And God would do it again and again, because the song says, like you would again a hundred billion times, but what measure could amount to your desire? You're the one who never leaves the one behind. God is enormous. He is vast, beyond all our imagination. And yet he loves you. 
He loves me. He loves everyone out there. He died to save them. And we are called to take that message through our worship to him.